Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. V.A. Shiva Yadore invented email in 1978 when he was a 14-year-old high school student working on a special project at the University of Medicine and Dentistry in Newark, New Jersey. Four years later, when he was an undergraduate student at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston, the United States government awarded him a copyright for his invention. Ayodore has received four, four separate degrees from MIT, including a PhD, and was awarded a Fulbright scholarship to study medicine in South India. He's written two books, The Future of Email, What We Must Do to Protect Ourselves, Something I'd Like to Know About, and The Science of Everything. 14 years old and playing with email that hadn't been invented yet? Tell us about that. Well, you know, uh, Alan, it's an interesting story, but in many ways it's probably an epitome and an example of the American dream. You know, my parents came here with about $75 in their pocket from India. I was uh, seven years old when I landed in the United States. In fact, we left India on my seventh birthday, December 2nd, 1963. Landed three days later here because we stopped off in London. But I was one of these very, very motivated kids, Alan, because I had this deep uh, uh, interest in two things, medicine and also why there was injustice in the world. And you can, as a seven-year-old, I had sort of had this interest, and then the interest was because I grew up in India at a time when, when still today, but at that time it was even more deep, the caste system. So I grew up as what you may call an untouchable or the lower caste, and I experienced injustices of that as a young kid. But at the same time... What does that mean, by the way? What is a lower caste? Well, in, you know, uh, so in India, it's a, literally a structure. At the top of it is what they call the priesthood or the Brahmins. You know, these are the people who are the advisors to the kings, politicians, etc. And then below them are the what are called the warrior caste. And then below them are the business caste. Some people flip it a little bit. And below them are what are known as sudras, S-U-D-R-A-S. And they're divided, in, and those are the lower caste. So you literally have a pyramid structure, and the caste system came about as a way of dividing labor up. My caste's job, sole job, if they weren't rebellious, was to essentially pick coconuts. Other people had to, you know, whatever, drive horses. You see, so these, these systems were set up essentially as a way of having, quote-unquote, stability in society. You wanted to escape all this. Your parents My parents did. wanted to escape all this. I mean, these were two incredible people. The fact that they even got educated in India sort of one in a trillion, trillion uh, probability. And the fact that they made it here was another, you know, very minimal probability. So I was always aware of that, what my parents had gone through when I used to go back to India. I was deeply aware of who my people were. You know, my grandparents were poor farmers. They worked 16 hours a day in the fields of India. And my grandmother on weekends was a healer. She practiced uh, India's traditional system of medicine. And she had no degree. She had tattoos all over her arms. Here was a woman who would could observe people's faces and understand what was going on systemically in their body. And based on that, she would come up with particular medicines, particular you know, ways to uh, support their body to do that, what we today call precision medicine any or personalized of this, medicine. Any of this prepare you for email? Definitely. Because I had this, so I saw this woman doing this and I said, how, how was she able to do this? I wanted to figure out how this woman with no degrees was able to heal people. So when I came to the United States, I had a deep interest in medicine. And I knew I had to study hard. My parents had made it clear education was the only way out. So that by the time I was 14, 
I had finished all my math courses. In fact, by ninth grade, I'd finished calculus. Livingston High School in Livingston, in Livingston High sure. School. But, you know, my parents started in Patterson. Then we went to uh, Clifton, then Persephone, and then Livingston. Livingston was sort of the top of the heap of a good educational public school system. Sounds like a New Jersey map or something. Though. Exactly. Yes, I'm a New Jersey boy. Not only from India, but but a hardcore New Jersey boy. So you're finishing, taking all these math courses. You're yeah. finishing every single one of them. You're 14 years old, and right. then... So what happens is, uh, by four, there was no more math courses. Ninth grade, I'd taken calculus. I was going to the high school at 12th grade, graduated number one in the math class. And uh, my parents were concerned that I get bored. You know, there's no more classes. So my mom gets this little paper cut out. She's working at the College of Medicine Dentistry, New Jersey, as a programmer. And she's concerned about me. A friend of her says, look, there's this little uh, notice in the newspaper, in the Washington Square Times. And this little newspaper that used to be in Washington Square, and it says, you know, there's a professor called Henry Mullish, a professor at NYU, and he was looking for 40 students that he could, uh, he would put through this very sort of rigorous military-like computer science program for eight weeks in Newark, and you would learn seven, I mean, in New York, NYU, you'd learn seven programming languages, and uh, I was fortunate to be able to uh, apply and get accepted, the only kid from New Jersey. And I had to go to New York. So my mom would drop me off like 6 a.m. at the PATH station. I'd take the train in. Remember, I'm a 14-year-old kid. Most parents don't even let their kids walk down the street anymore these days. And uh, I went and studied at NYU with these amazing people. And I graduated top of the class. But then you were back in Newark, New Jersey. I, well, I was back. And uh, I was back because uh, what do I do now with these skills? I, had, I could program. I would learned these programming languages. My mom introduces me to someone who worked in, at UMDNJ called Dr. Leslie P. Michelson. A professor now at Rutgers University. He's a professor at Rutgers. And Rutg uh, Les, at that time, had just come to the university. He was a high-energy particle physicist. He had come out of Brookhaven. And his job at NY, at, 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 I'm sorry, at UMDNJ, was to start using computers to help medical researchers do data processing, right? Because they're collecting lots of data on print and paper. How could you use that data to understand the body better, right? To understand diagnostics. So Les had started to bring computing in. And in fact, he'd set up a small network. Uh, remember, UMDNJ or CMDNJ at the time had three campuses, Newark, New Brunswick, and Piscataway. And Les had set up, independent of any of the big guys, his own computer network. And so Les gave me a challenge. He said, look, Shiva, uh, we have this thing in this university called the inner office mail system. Now, Alan, most people over the age of 40 remember this system uh, that ran organizations. It was called the Inner Office Mail System. It was all paper-based. And every researcher, every doctor, every professor always had a secretary, always a woman. And on her desktop, literally a physical desk, she had a thing called the inbox, the outbox. Behind her were file folders. And she had paper clips. She would, on her uh, desktop, was also a typewriter. This old-fashioned typewriter, she put paper in, she typed a memo. And you were going to fix all this? I was going to fix all that. I was did you? I did. I converted that entire system. It was not just the memo, not just the inbox, but that whole system to an electronic version. And 50,000 lines of code over a system of 35 programs. And I worked my butt off, Alan, and I'd show up there like a worker with my briefcase. I was treated as an equal. And I uh, called this system email. Parents weren't nervous about you going to Newark? 
No, no, no. My parents were thrilled. You know, we grew up in uh, India. We have snakes running around. You know, it was more dangerous to walk in fields. And I'm just in kidding. I thought I read somewhere <laughs> where you were your parents a little nervous about you going to Newark. No, no. My my parents, uh, I think, were more concerned that I worked too hard. I remember my mom used to watch me work. She goes, "Why are you working so hard?" You know, parents typically had to do the opposite. But I was just into whatever I did, Alan. I loved you know, challenges. And you finished the challenge. What happened? 1978. So, so, so 78, you know, software is always evolving. The first version of it, uh, we called email and we had this system, which basically let these uh, office workers move from the typewriter to the computer keyboard and they could do everything they did with the inner office mail system through Why the did computer. You, what, try to interrupt you. Why did you call it? Email. It's a good question. You know, it's not an obvious term. In those days, a Fortran programming language allowed everything had to be in uppercase characters. You know, you couldn't use lowercase. Well, you have to understand that a lot of people uh, kind of don't have your ability to be able to understand that language. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a language that scientists use to do programming for scientific problems. Here, was, I was using a, a program that was used for science problems for communications, which itself was a big challenge. So Fortran... In this language, when you imagine talking, everything had to be in uppercase. Okay, so everything had to be in uppercase. The operating system only allowed five characters. So people use Android or, you know, the Apple operating system. Imagine you had a limit on the name of the application. So that's where email came. That's how email became ter- yes. email. That's how email became email. So email. But it hasn't been, wasn't formally announced that Shiva had email. Maybe even created this thing yet. Well, the university, we used it. Hundreds of people used it. We quote unquote sold it because uh, when researchers in the institution had to use it, they had to pay a small fee when the application was used. Remember, in those days, it was time sharing applications. Did you um, get a patent on it or anything? Uh, I uh, so what I so here's an in, it's a very interesting question because at that time, Alan, you weren't able to get patents. Remember, this is 1978. There was no laws to even protect software. It was only 1980. At that point, I'm 16 years old. Um, really getting old. I'm getting old. I'm getting old. The show's getting old, unless I tell everybody that you're listening to Conversations with Alan Walper on WBGO 88.3 and WBGO.org. Our guest is Shiva Ayudore, who in 1982, I'm moving a little bit ahead, received a copyright from the United States government for creating your email program. And let's see, the number, what is that, TXU? 108715. That's right. That's the copyright registration that was awarded to me. And you knew that by heart, right? Well, August 30th, 1982. What happened? Well, so so as I was saying, you couldn't patent software because the policymakers in Washington didn't know what software was. In 1980, they decide, oh, this stuff software that's being written is sort of like sheet music, you know, music. So they said, we're going to change the copyright law of 1976 to let people use copyright, you know, to protect software inventions. Now, I didn't know anything about this, Alan. I went off to MIT in 1981. I was elected student body president. In fact, on the front page of MIT, out of the 1,000 students, I was referenced in there for creating this email system. I was at the president's house. He goes, you know, it's unfortunate that the Supreme Court doesn't recognize software patents, but you should copyright it. And you did. I did. 
And it was not a trivial process. Did you make any deal out of this? You know, telling the whole world, told the press conference, look, I got, email, I got this thing called email. No, no, I, I didn't. I mean, I, you know, to me, you got to understand, as an innovator, the, the whole opportunity to work and create, we weren't a Silicon Valley. My parents weren't lawyers like Bill Gates's uh, parents. This was just about this excitement. That was the first time I knew anything about the legal stuff. When did you, when did you do this copyright thing? It was in... Uh, and why? When it was this... Yeah, because... So I, I went to the president's home. I remember this vividly because he had some of the student leaders there. And he's, he was sharing with me because he was a science advisor, I believe at that time, to the president of the United States. And he was saying, you know, software patents are not allowed. The Supreme Court didn't recognize software patent. This is in 1981. But he said you can copyright it, right? Uh, because this law had been passed in 1980. So... I wrote away for the paperwork, and it was all through you know, snail mail. Got the paperwork, and it was very particular instructions. You had to send in your code. You had to send in, uh, uh, I also wrote a manual. We went back and forth on August 30th, 1982. I received the official copyright for email, recognizing me as the inventor of email. Did you go out and celebrate? What happened? No, I just filed it away. You know? I never thought about it. I never thought about it. You know, a good, humble Indian. My parents were... You know, the, the idea, there was no th nothing about PR celebrating. It was more like, hey, you did hard work. This was an elder person telling you this is what you should do, and that's what I went off and did. And you've had a hard time defending yourself against all kinds of charges that you're not really the man of email, you're not the email guy. Yeah, it's and, been, it's been frankly I, horrible, I, yeah. And recently, uh, I was looking at a piece in the Boston Globe, and uh, if you don't mind me quoting this, and you said, when I was at MIT, I was a good model minority. But the concept of an Indian immigrant, which is interesting these days, creating an email in Newark, New Jersey, blows the mind of certain people. The white liberals who do this don't even know they're being racist. You truly believe that? Definitely. You know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, and I know this well, Alan, because it's not only here, but, you know, quote-unquote liberals, quote-unquote people who claim they want to help the poor people, the, you know, women and minorities, in many ways they have this missionary-type attitude. And it's fa fascinating because those people in many ways are more elitist, more racist, and more segregationist than I've ever experienced. And that's what this is about. When I, you know, there's a narrative about what a you know, how certain people are supposed to behave. And I believe the certain people of intellectual elitism want to govern people by their narratives. So in this narrative, you know, here's a good Indian. Indians are supposed to be smart, comes to MIT. And I was on the front page of MIT three times for many other things. But in on February 16th, 2012, when my stuff went into the Smithsonian, which, you know, I didn't really ask for any of this, uh, it exploded across the internet and everywhere, people calling me all sorts of names. Like what? Imposter, fraud, curry-stained Indian who should be beaten and hanged, nigger Indian. And Bad. still today, it's like Telephones. hate crimes. Telephone calls, threats. Tell, yeah, I, thousands of calls, at minimum hundreds of calls came into MIT where I was teaching a course asking for my firing. Uh, it was unbelievable what you was taking You left MIT, place. didn't you? Well, yeah, because, you know, I, in fact, wanted to burn all my degrees. Because here I had served that institute. I was an I was an undergraduate president. I was a fraternity brother. I, I tutored there. I taught there. I had the most popular elective class. I was teaching there. 
And here, when, when this occurred, and I dared to say that email was done before I came to MIT, I became a pariah, which is, by the way, a Tamil word, which means outcast. It's fascinating. If you look at the origin of, we say it in Tamil, paraya. But I became a pariah. And it was only later, I went to Chomsky, Noam came up and stood up for me. And he even got a lot of rancor from MIT for doing that. He claimed that uh, people were just jealous of you because this 14-year-old kid from Newark. Well, I, I think I think Noam said more than that. He said there's this larger na- narrative, you know, that uh, where does public funding come for this? Yeah, so it's jealousy, but I think it's deeper than that. You know, they're still I, fighting you. I mean, the they're New still York, fighting me. The, it's it's actually it's bizarre if you don't mind. I read that there was David Pogue with the New York Times just went after you, and then I saw a story of the New York Times quoting you. Exactly. And Pogue never the, even called me. And then uh, he never called you. Never called me. He just just went Never after called you. me. The only journalist that did journalism was Doug Ameth of Time. When there's you, a five part, was, that, that thing went on forever. That thing went on forever. But Doug was the only one who looked at the artifacts, actually went through it, went spent weeks on it, and then he wrote an article on November 11th, 2011, called "The Man Who Invented Email." And he still believes that. I, yeah, I mean, he, he he was under massive pressure to retract a story, and he didn't. He didn't. And in fact, uh, Mo Rocha did a small piece on CBS News. And if you look, whenever the journalists do tell the truth, these other guys go after them. And most of them cave in. But Well, well you had a, an interesting situation with Gawker, Gawker Magazine, or Gawker Online before. Gawker Media, yeah. Yeah, before, um, before they closed. And uh, I guess you helped that. Yeah, $750,000, is yep. that right? Yeah, they, they needed to be driven to bankruptcy. And that's what we helped do. It was a good thing. And it has nothing to do with the First Amendment. You know, Gawker Media is part of the new digital media companies, which thinks that they can clickbait, you know, write the most salacious content. And they're a capitalist company, which makes millions of dollars and builds value. uh, And they present themselves as journalists. And then they want to hide behind the First Amendment. The First Amendment does not protect calling people frauds and liars and defaming people. And yet you're not taking on people like the New York Times and the Washington Post. A guy in the Washington Post spent something like six or seven pages going after you. And he said he was apologizing to all everybody who read him saying, Jesus, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I didn't really mean to say that guy was an inventor of email. Well, you have, to, you have to actually read it carefully. Oh, I did. It was So if you say that, so the bizarre. first article was written by a young African-American, Emmy Kalawale, wrote a, a very nice article saying V.A. Shiva honored as the inventor of email. Within hours of writing that, she gets attacked by so-called historians, so-called ARPANET pioneers, internet pioneers, saying she's an idiot, she's stupid. And Emmy's calling me saying, Shiva, my editor's about to throw me under the bus. And she goes, I would like you to write a rebuttal. Two people want to attack you. And I said, why is it two on one? She goes, who do you want to have? I said, why don't I get Noam Chomsky? So we spend weeks writing our rebuttals. In fact, it got approved by the editorial staff of the Washington Post. At the last minute, the Post changes a policy and says there's going to be personal attacks against me, and I should also do personal attacks. Me and Chomsky pull out. Then they they make a correction. You, know, you, don't, you don't look like the kind of guy to get in this kind of fight, but I have a feeling that you're going to be doing this the rest of your life. Well, you know, I don't think we're going to be doing it the rest of our lives because, you know, the truth is the truth is the truth. You know, it's like... The sun is the center of the solar system. You know, the Catholic Church waited until 1992 to absolve Galileo. What we're living with is we're living with a a time when the facts can be black and white, 
but people, elites in these positions in media and academia, think they can write whatever they want and manipulate history. That's the voice of Shiva Yudare, who is winning a battle to retain his claim to being the inventor of email. It must be boring to hear this all the time. People say, you claim, and there are, all the stories I've read about you is he claimed, maybe he did it, maybe he didn't do it. Are they afraid of you? They are, Alan, because you got to understand, you know, deep down, what's fascinating is, you know, my story in the invention of email breaks up a deep segregationist narrative. You know, people know about Jackie Robinson, right, in the 40s. Okay, that's easy to understand now. But what am I talking about when I mean segregation? We're talking about Well, this... the Wall Street Journal, I don't interrupt you, but the Wall Street Journal says email's invention says the future systems will have, and this is all about the future of email. Yeah, Wall Street Journal asked me for their 125th issue, and they quoted me as the email inventor. The New York Times during the Hillary Clinton thing ca called me as the expert. They didn't call anyone else. So these guys are in this schizophrenic mode. They don't know what to do with me because the facts are there. Yeah, I don't even know what to do with you. Well, I mean, what's going on here? What's really going on here, Alan, is, you know, different points in human history. There's so many parts to you that we wanted to get into, but every time we get to talk about email, I could just see your eyes begin to open up. You stop smiling. And you have a <laughs> you have a look that says I'm going to kill this guy, and I I don't I don't know what how you can go on and not be suing every single person who goes after you as long as you're doing it. Hey, you're making seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, a lot of money. Well, you know, it's not a lot of money compared to the hell I've gone through, Alan. You know, my you know, if you talk to people or artists and creators, their reputation is based on what they did. I've been inventing, if you want, since I was a kid. <laughs> I still invent. I created a new technology that's going to eliminate animal testing. I made a major breakthrough in integrating Eastern and Western medicine. You also know that inventors, many, many inventors, never get credit for what they did. That may be true, but that doesn't mean that's the right thing. You know, it took Philo Farnsworth almost 50, 60 years to be recognized. And by the way, he's a 14-year-old kid who invented TV. Now there's a statue of him in Washington. The facts were black and white on him. He wasn't a dark-skinned guy like me, nor an immigrant, but he was outside of the military-industrial-academic complex. And you think being a dark-skinned guy like you has had an impact on why people behave that definitely, way? Definitely, but it's not the whole story, you see. Definitely, my case, that's another aspect of it. And many of these people, you know, their image of Indians is guys like Deepak Chopra speak like this and sit in a lotus position, and Gandhi, who takes it on the chin, supposedly, and everyone's supposed to take it like that. People don't even know this. This is deep. Now, I'm not willing to be a good Indian. You see, this Indian fights back. He doesn't let up. You know, he doesn't take it on the chin and walk away. He's not willing to be a quote-unquote a good Indian. Whether what is they, a good Indian? A good Indian. Have you ever watched Gunga Din? You yeah, know, stands up straight and does, does. It's a colonialist model. Whether people know it or not, within them, and they have this attitude. You know, Walter Isaacson, you may know, have wrote a book in the middle of this controversy called The Innovators of the Digital Revolution, right in the middle of it. Here's supposed to be a good journalist, right? You read the book, all the pictures are white guys, and in fact, one white woman, who are the innovators of the digital revolution. There's no brown people, there's no yellow people, there's no one else. Now, he knows this controversy is going on. Isn't email part of the digital revolution? It's not even addressed in this big, thick, hardcover book. You know what gets me is right now we're in the middle of a debate about immigration, and here you are trying to explain that immigration is really a good thing. Look, we got email because of me. You well, think about that? I have thought about that, but email came out in many ways because my parents believed in the values of the American dream, which was you work hard. 
I, you know, I never thought of myself as smart, Alan. I just knew that I worked hard. You know, I, I, I'd get up at five in the morning and I'd work until 12. I still do that, midnight. So my parents just taught me this, this, this notion of you work hard, period. What about, what about a personal life? You were married once. I've, I've, I'm a serial monogamist, you know? I've always been searching for the love of my life. But, you know, I... Uh, I, thought you, I thought you met her once. Wait a minute. I met them many times. <laughs> no, there's a picture. Oh. I have a picture with you here, right here, yeah. with Fran Drescher, the nanny. Right. For a couple of years. Yeah. Did you, you know, guys ever get married? Because it's so we so, so, look, we had a spiritual wedding. You know, we were emotionally connected. We never got legally married. You know, Fran and I, are, uh, at that time, were both over the age of 50, you know, given all the legal structures that gave today, you know, you know, it didn't make any sense at that point. But more importantly, for me, uh, it was it was an interesting thing because I started learning about the Hollywood industrial complex. You know, talk about the military industrial complex. I learned the amount of BS that goes on in Hollywood for people to even get to a certain level and how much the emphasis is on being relevant to do anything to stay relevant. Well, you're relevant, aren't you? No. Yeah, but I'm, no, but I'm saying for these actors and a actresses, right? So they have a show. There's massive pressure on them to do, you know, we, it's a longer discussion, maintain relevance. So I found out in many ways that I was a piece in a larger puzzle to maintain relevance. And I'll talk about it at some other point. I don't want to go into too much detail. But the, the net of it is there's massive pressure in that infrastructure to Hollywood elite to maintain your status, you know? And for me, it was an interesting journey. It took me about a year to figure this out, but that's- How long ago until this whole thing started that you finally began to get a, get a handle on it? About a year. It took me about a year to figure out- And how old were you at that time? Uh, Jesus, what, 50? 51? Yeah. 51. So I, you know, I connected when I was you know, 49. It took me about a year and a half to figure out the dynamics of Hollywood. Most of those people are very insecure. I'm talking about yourself. When did you finally come to grips with all this stuff that was happening to you, all the people who were going after you? Oh, I see. And, and then the whole, well, the the whole email controversy started on February 16, 2012. That's when it started. You know, my mother was dying of pulmonary fibrosis three months before in a suitcase. She had saved everything, Alan. I never wanted fame or fortune for this. I'd, I'd made money many other ways, gotten fame many other ways. The the day uh, my mother gave this to me, I looked at it, this material. A friend of mine who's a professor at Emerson said, Shiva, you invented email. Why didn't you tell anyone? He got Doug Ameth to come from the New York, from the, not New York Times, from, from Time, Time Magazine. magazine. Time, and Doug spent three weeks, still to this day, the one of the probably two journalists actually gone through the material. This is unbelievable. Who's actually talked with me. So-called historians. Uh, these other journalists, Pogue, none of these guys have even gone through the materials. So Doug went through it. He wrote that long piece that you saw. My God, that went on forever. Right. And then the, the Smithsonian contacted me, wanted all my materials, and they told me they were going to display all of this at the Smithsonian. That Under that arrangement is what I gave, gave it to them literally after a month after my mom died. They still haven't displayed it, Alan, because those Smithsonian people who took it are part of this clique of this historian organization, which believes they have, they're the anointers of who invented email. And, you know, it's like a new skull was found in Africa and you had to destroy that narrative. You know, they had already decided where the origin of human beings came from. Personal life, you have to have some time for personal life. I do. I, I mean, 
you know, my person. You know, you don't look like you're working twelve, fourteen, sixteen hours a day, but you are. Huh? I I do, but I you know I also believe in health and stuff. I work out. You run around a lot. I I, I lift weights. I do yoga. I meditate. I believe in meditation and prayer. Regularly, I believe these are very good things to renew the soul. I don't think I would have, would have done this without that. And before, as before, we got into this. You decided that uh, you could run for the Senate against Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts. What would we do with that? Uh, you know what? I think it's partly related to this. As I look at, you know, I'm not even going to, uh, you know, uh, attack individuals, but I can tell you the liberal ethos, this missionary model is basically destroying the United States. As a Republican or a Democrat? I'm going to run as a Republican. It doesn't matter. Hyundai, you know, whatever you drive, it's really what what you stand for. You know, I'm going to run as a Lincoln Republican. Lincoln believed labor was more important than capital. Work. Work. Hard work, you know? Can you actually win? Can you beat her? I'm going to win. I'm going to beat her. I know I can beat her. Do you have the money to uh, go against someone? I just announced people want to give me tons of money. You know, there's, you know, it's not, you know, the mo- the current way that people run for office is all an insider's game. It's political consultants. And we're going to do this campaign very differently. We're going to run it as engineers, as MIT engineers who build things out of nothing. We made email out of nothing. And that's how we're going to run this campaign. We'll keep an eye on you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Shiva, thanks for sharing your life and your endless work with us. Sure. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for the opportunity to come here today. Joanna Welper is a senior producer of our program. Brian Lurie is the engineer, and Doug Doyle is executive producer. You can listen to our entire archive list of shows featuring folks whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge by Googling Conversations with Alan Walper. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Until we talk again, I'm Alan Walper. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production facility in the Flatiron District of New York City. 